Hi, this is Greg Lamond, and you're listening to the Velocast at the 2016 Tour de France with Scott Raw, John Galloway, and Ashley House. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Velocast analysis of the 2016 Tour de France. The stage following a rest day at the Tour often throws up some surprises as riders can never predict exactly how their bodies will react to the resumption of hostilities. For stage 10 to revel though, much of the peloton managed to neatly sidestep this question by simply not bothering with the trifling matter of doing any racing. As such, it was left to a breakaway group of nine riders who established the break of the day, which split to seven just 20 kilometres from the finish. The pace was forced by a rampaging Petter Sagan, but with Orica Bike Exchange having the numerical advantage, it was Michael Matthews who emerged victorious to take his first ever stage win at the Tour. He might have won the stage, but Petter Sagan definitely won the day with his post-race interview. Uh, Before we go any further... I think we should also say Petr Sagan just simply won the day by being <laughs> awesomely awesome at all stages throughout that race. Not only was he the one that was forcing the pace in the breakaway and attempting to ride everyone off his wheel, he was clearly desperate to be in any breakaway that was going because he attacked, I think, almost from the gun to form the, the first break, which was ultimately brought back. But then when, I think it was Nibali, attacked Sagan was on his wheel straight away to make sure he got into any break that formed then so oh the guy's just brilliant no absolutely but I mean the point I'm talking about is where in the post-race interview he's slightly sweaty you know the hair's down and the 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 woman interviewing him says so you know it, it must have been difficult for you with three you know three other teams members in the break and he just went yep and dropped the mic and walked off. <laughs> awesome. But Sagan out. He was so strong today, actually, that, you know, if you look at the numerical advantage, and you're not, you know, three members of Etic Quickstep and Ian Stannard last year, <laughs> uh, you just assume, you, you have to assume that uh, Orica Bike Exchange had this in the bag. You know, when the, the, the splits all played out and we got down to those final seven riders, you just had to say, although there were some absolutely class riders in there, I mean, it was a break worthy of a monument classic. I mean, it just absolutely top class riders in there. The way Sagan was riding, I was certain he was going to win. You know, I, I looked at the numerical advantage. I looked at riders of the quality. Luke Durbridge, Darrell Impey, Michael Matthews, Eddie Bosenhagen was in there. Uh, Sam de Milan, who'd been in you know since that early break with Nibali. Um, who else was in there? Um, uh, okay, Zaguer and uh, Mikael Landa. Steve Cummings as well, before yeah. they were ultimately dropped uh, to, to go back to, to the peloton. So, and it was the, 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 the smaller group of seven and as I say, who kind of contested that that final run into the finish. Yeah, so I mean, you've got, I mean, just look at that. Look at that roster of riders. And still, they look like also rans beside Peter Sagan. I mean, my notes, we were talking about this before we started recording and, and you know, in f- the finest tradition of the Velocast. And usually my notes are, are you know, pretty long, pretty diverse. But essentially, my notes are just a series of, you know, rider attacks, be it MP or Durbridge or whoever. Peter Sagan closes and looks easy. I mean, he managed to look absolutely unstoppable until, you know, the very finale when we actually got proof that even he's human. You know, 
you just can't take three strong, strong riders working in a coherent and organised way against you. And Orica Bike Exchange deserve every single credit for that. They set up Michael Matthews beautifully. And it just shows that however strong you are, numerical advantage, 99 times out of 100 will win. And we can't take anything away from Michael Matthews. You know, fastest uh, in the sprint. His team set him up perfectly so he didn't have to do too much work. It's his first Tour de France stage in a, in a race which he thought was actually you know a bit of a bogeyman for him uh, but I was a wee bit sad that Peter didn't take it home but back in the green jersey achieved his objective and afterwards said you know yeah this stage was important but you know there's stuff in life that's more important so his head screwed on right as well yeah you're absolutely right with with all of that and and I think um, Michael Matthews being the the strongest in the sprint was down to the obviously the work that these two teammates had done for him across the the 20 kilometres or so preceding it, but also because he was then left the the freshest out of everyone Mm -hmm. because he was the only one in that group that really didn't contribute to to any of the attacks or or bringing said attacks back to to reform the the group. He sat at the back most of the time. And, of course, he was expected to. Nobody would really have any cause for complaint of of him being there because, as you rightly say, Orica Bike Exchange have the, the new medical advantage and he's the guy that they're setting up for but yeah I felt very sorry for Sagan I thought the sprint itself was was interesting I mean perfectly played as as we're saying by Matthews and, and Orica Bike Exchange but there was almost a coming together between Sagan and Eddie Bosenhagen just as the sprint got going I mean, Sagan, he clearly covered about an extra kilometre in the last 20k, just zigzagging from side to side in the road. Well, I, I did tweet at various points, or, or I had noticed at various points, but it had caused me to tweet, rather, he's like a slow-motion Nasser Bahani, the way he weaves across the road. Yeah, and nearly took Eddie BH on the climb as well. Um, I think there's a situation where he knew... He, I mean, he's tactically very astute. He knew that he, he had to control those guys and the only way you can control them is to know what's happening I mean I don't think I've ever seen a rider look back other than in a track sprint quite as much as Peter Sagan did in those last few K he wanted to be completely aware so that he could get on top of any move as soon as it happens and he managed to do that with absolute success until you know the final move where Michael Matthews managed to cross the line first but they had enough time I mean because although we saw I mean I think um, his Last break, which dragged that final seven away, uh, was was driven by the fact that the peloton seemed quite interested in the chase at that point. There came a point with you know maybe fifteen k to go where it was clear that the peloton were just going to let them go, and the time actually just kept ramping up, and that meant instead of having to all work together, they had time for that old cliched cat and mouse. So we actually got the pleasure of watching a really tactical final race as opposed to you know the break having to drive right till the last kilometer to keep away from the peloton, and then a simple sprint. So it was a treat in many ways. Sadly though. You know, it doesn't actually leave that much to talk about because <laughs> it it was just this is the strongest guy, but they've got more numbers. You know, it wasn't subtle tactically; it was brute force and simple maths or simple arithmetic. Fantastic to watch, but you know, not a lot to analyse. It's got to be said. I mean, no disrespect to Daryl Impey or Luke Durbridge, but I was also kind of tweeting, you know, pelotons. Who needs pelotons? I mean, really, because it was cracking racing. And I would have loved to have seen it just being one guy from every team. 
being in, you know, there fighting for, for the stage win, um, because the way Sagan was was going for it, it would have been very, very difficult, I think, for anybody to have beaten him today if it had been mano a mano, to borrow a phrase from, from Phil Liggett. Um, but the peloton were completely irrelevant today, and it was still great bike racing. I mean, it was proper old school guys just going hammer and tong because... As you say, that the gap was so big, the peloton didn't care. There was no need for them to work together to to maintain the gap up until the final kilometer or anything. So I I thoroughly enjoyed that finale today. Yeah, and I thoroughly enjoyed the fact that Michael Matthews dedicated the stage to his wife and his dog. In that order, or is there some? Who knows? I mean, seriously, who knows? I, I mean, I, depending on mood, I could go either way on any given day as well. So, uh, but you know, a man who loves his dogs, fine in my book. Well, as long as it's just reserved to um, uh, dedications for stage wins, and you you wouldn't go either way in any other situation with your <laughs> your dog and your wife, John. Just saying. Uh, a couple of quick questions regarding the, the peloton and indeed the the breakaway that that formed early on. What on earth was Mikel Landa doing getting out in a break? Um, I don't know. He probably just looked around and realised there was nobody behind him at one point. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I was I was chatting to, to to Ashley and we were both saying, you know, you look at Vincenzo Nibali, I, we thought there was a cunning plan. You know, you and I thought there was a cunning plan. Everybody and their granny thought there might be a cunning plan. I'm pretty sure he's now just making it up each day as he goes along. And Mikel Landa, what was going on with him and uh, Nibali at the line? It looked like they were having a proper domestic. Oh, I've so, no idea. So, um, you know, I've, I've got no idea what Landa was doing out there. Um, the day was easy enough, particularly if you didn't go with that final uh, Sagan monstrous pull that split the, the break apart. The day was easy enough that I don't think he'll have hurt his legs very much. But with, you know, a, a, probably a very hard sprinter stage tomorrow with, you know, possibilities of, of other occurrences. Moving on to Vong 2, where you've got to assume Landa's going to be one of Chris Froome's vital lieutenants on the, you know, the 14th. Uh, I was really surprised to see him out in the break. You know, he's not a lowly domestique that's sent in there, out there to cover for the team with the opportunities chance of a, a victory you know he's one of the vital mountain guys for Chris Froome and I would have expected him to be soft pedaling as much as he possibly could you know on the shoulder of his leader so yeah I was surprised to see him out there as well. Mm. Uh, Tommy Vokler decided that the peloton wasn't doing nearly enough work uh, at one point and decided to essentially pull them tugboat style. It was like watching the Queen Mary come into dock with a tiny little tugboat hauling at them uh, to get a move on. Yeah, and I thought that showed great uh, teamwork with his mate Chavanel in the break. You know, well done, Tommy. Uh, <laughs> you know, no chance of getting up there and winning if you had done. I, I mean, I was sitting there just going, what are you doing? <laughs> Seriously, what are you doing? Um, and he seems to be a guy, we've seen it two or three times already in this uh you know, in this tour, he's maybe got some impulse management issues because he just takes off after breaks for apparently random reasons. He's done it two or three times now. Yeah, he's, he's just like a little excited puppy. You know, I'm going for it, I'm off, I'm going for it. <laughs> uh, you're also talking about uh, some bonhomie continuing with Richie Port and, and Chris Froome as they, they come into the finish line today. Do you know what? I mean... I'm absolutely certain that uh, Richie Port was working for himself uh, when we saw the climb up to Arculus. Um, you know, he's, he's, his aims coincided 
with Chris Frooms. But nonetheless, social media, uh, you know, the press, all everywhere that you can read or look about cycling has gone on about was he working? He's been forced to issue, um, you know, essentially a, a statement saying, no, I'm not working with him. And you would think that we know they're good friends, you know, we know they train together during Sky, we know they get on really well, but see him riding up to the finish, looking like he's still a member of Team Sky, and laughing and joking with Chris, as we saw. It's completely innocent, you know, it's nothing to do with working for another team, but it's just, you know, you're just feeding the the controversy that's appearing in the Tinfoil Hat Brigade. You should get, you know, get WhatsApp, you know, use Twitter, DMs, appear like enemies until after the tour's finished, then go for a meal and be friends again. You know, this is, it's professional cycling, but there's also a bit of the entertainment industry in there. And he should be, I think he should be bigging up that rivalry. If only it stopped folk moaning at him about helping Froome. Yeah, save the the beds too big without you for Snapchat. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Uh, did you see a, a bit of comedy sprinting at, at the line when, as I laughingly called them, the Gruppetto finally managed to make it to, to the finish line between uh, two of the guys from Trek, Edward Toynes and Jasper Stuyven? Yeah, I did see that. That made me laugh. I mean, the other thing where I thought I was going to end myself laughing if it happened was, uh, you know, when the, the second half of that initial break came in, uh, we saw Caruso from uh, BMC came in about nine seconds ahead of Gorka Zaguerra and Tony Gallopin, etc. And he was pushing so hard. I mean, clearly for points and clearly for a bit of time. But he was pushing so hard. I had this brief moment where I was certainly was going to cross the line with his arms aloft, having forgotten there were seven guys up the road. <laughs> he just looked so concentrated on the line that I was amazed when he crossed it without throwing his arms up because I thought we were in for one of those classic comedy moments. <laughs> One one rider up ahead is forgivable. Seven, not so much. It's a bit careless. <laughs> Isn't it, indeed? Now, I think it's time to hand over to uh, impresario and freelance voice coach Ashley House for his behind-the-scenes look at today's stage. Welcome to, uh, to Ashley House of Tour Extra and Eurosport. And Ashley, um, have your vocal cords recovered from the rest day and the way that the rider's legs get blocked? <laughs> uh, yeah, we had, a, we had a good rest day. The weather was terrible. Uh, I've got to admit, I apologise to any Andorran listeners, but I'm not a huge fan of Andorra. I really can't imagine why anybody goes to live there who's got lots of money. Well, I I mean, I've been there a couple of times, and for me, it just looks like the biggest duty-free in the world. Uh, Yeah, that is basically exactly what it is. When a litre and a half of the most expensive vodka you can buy in in a British British nightclub was uh, €25, which is extraordinary. (laughs) Not that I bought any, I should add. Anyway, talking about extraordinary, what a break today. I mean, for a moment, I thought we were back watching the Spring Classics. It was like a monument. Yeah, it really was, actually, wasn't it? it it's very clever of the uh, of the race organisers to put that massive climb straight away from the start after the rest day. Juan Antonio said it's not by any means the first time they've done it, but it does make for exciting racing because, actually, we didn't know whether a breakaway would be strong enough to get over that first time and stay away. We didn't know whether... The sprinters will be able to hang on to the, to the bunch and then force the bunch to catch any breakaway that formed. And then eventually when we did see that breakaway go, eventually with the 11 riders and then became 13, what a bunch. Of, I mean, what a group to have in a breakaway. And there were so many stories that at that point you thought could have been written. Could it be another victory for Dimension Data? Might we see Greg Van Avermet pips again like at Omelette uh, uh, Omelet Newsblatt? 
it's a, a race name I can never say, and Juan Antonio always laughs at me for saying it. Um, but so many things that could happen. And then there's three Orica Bike Exchange riders in there. That was another story as well. So it, it was one of those days where there was a lot of anticipation, even if there wasn't a lot of action. And I don't think it was just the, you know, just us as pundits who were wondering whether the break would stick, because we saw the likes of Mark Cavendish in his skin suit. You know, so he was clearly prepping for a, a sprint if if the opportunity had arisen. So even the riders, had, I think, didn't know what was going to happen. And when you add in the excitement of post-race day legs, I think we got an absolute treat today. The strongest man by far, I think, was clearly Peter Sagan. Um, I mean, he just looked absolutely imperious. I was, I was saying during the race that he looked both marked out and insolently confident. I mean, just a great, great bike racer in his, in his pomp. Yeah, he is, isn't he? And do you know what's great as well is that because he's so because he's so far ahead of everybody else, because he's so successful and and just he just does everything that he wants to do. The, the way that he then had to try and resist the rest of that seven man breakaway, trying to get on his wheel and just use him was absolutely intriguing. The way he weaved across the road nearly ended up having a crash as a result. But I love the, the head-on shot that the Moto camera gave us within the last, let's say, kilometre and a half, 2K, where all seven of them were just looking over their shoulders. Because we've seen so often, uh, you know, when, when someone looks over their shoulder, then looks forward and the, and the one further back goes around and, and that's the moment they need. Because they only need a moment, these guys. Yeah. So it was amazing to see all seven of them just looking back over their shoulder the whole time. And then Van Avermaet went and it just didn't quite, wasn't quite enough. I thought you were actually quite cruel to keep Daryl Impey standing in the cold for so long there. Because the man worked like a <laughs> demon for, for Michael Matthews, his team leader. Yeah, he did. So did Luke Durbridge as well. Yeah. And, and as you heard Daryl say, and Michael Matthews at the end, it sounded enormously accidental to me. Daryl sort of said to us, yeah, well, it sort, of just, it sort of just happened. And then we looked around and there were three of us. And we thought, well, we better, we better work at this as well as we can. And we ended up doing it quite well. Damn right they did it quite well, jeez. Now, uh, or sticking with Orica Bike Exchange rather you need to perform some Velocast duties in the ground and give Michael Matthews a bit of a slap because I don't approve of anybody called Bling <laughs> Well John I mean for those, those those listeners who don't know you the reason uh, John doesn't like other people being known as Bling is because he's got four diamond studded earrings in one ear and then he's got one in another part of his body as well he just doesn't want you to know jealousy John jealousy all joking aside I mean what we saw was another uh, tour another tour first I mean Michael Matthews been so successful and was really emotional after the race because he thought this race would never gonna you know it was never gonna come to him but now he's got a stage you know that's that might be the floodgates broken I mean a great great sprinter a really good kind of rolling sprinter as well somebody who's more than just a pure sprinter and well deserved win I mean I was sad to see Sagan pipped but if I wanted anybody to win it was Matthews yeah I mean you say that John I mean I agree with you 100% about Orica Bike Exchange and about Michael Matthews at the very beginning of the day it looked to me like it was it could easily be a Sagan uh, Degan Colborne Matthews Day um, I know what you mean about Michael Matthews you wouldn't want it any other team but actually if you look down the guys who were in that breakaway there are a lot of them who you would have said oh actually I'd love him to win I'd actually I'd love him to win I mean Eddie Burson Hagen is a lovely guy Steve Cummings to get another one would have been superb Greg yeah. Van Havermet has already had such a great tour Tony yeah, Gallagher yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, but you're right. You know, for Orica Greenedge, given the dominance they had over the last couple of years in the uh, in the time tri- in the time trials, or two years ago especially, and you can you can see that they're a good team. And uh, Matthew White, I think, of all the director sportifs that I know, possibly uh, including in that 
uh, Mark Reef from Giant Albertson, who's also a lovely guy, but, but Matthew White is a cracking guy. And I know it's a cliche, and I know I made a terrible joke at the end of the show. But you know what? Australia, just a lot of Australians are just really, really nice, and that is exemplified by Orica Biking Jane. About twenty percent of our uh, Australia, or about twenty percent of our listeners are Australian, and I reckon they generate about forty percent of the contact. They're amongst the most sociable people in the world. I mean, and they they do it at the daftest times of night. Uh, well, I have to say, for, for, for the Australians, I did not know that that, that bigger percentage of your listeners were Australian. But um, but in retrospect, I'm very glad that they are, given that I said that. And I haven't yet been to Australia, so um, any kind of offers of accommodation and so on, gladly received. <laughs> I'm going to finish today by talking about a prediction which we both had earlier in the race, where we suspected that Astana had a cunning plan that we might see play out. I'm starting to think they might not have, and it's actually just Vincenzo Nibali making it up on a daily basis. <laughs> I think we were both being really optimistic, weren't we, when we said that, probably. Um, I, I really hope that they might have some extraordinarily cunning plan. Uh, but in the end, it turns out they're Baldrick rather than Blackadder. Yeah, I think you're right there. Now, we've got another Sprinter's Day tomorrow, but are the Peloton already starting to think about uh, Bastille Day and, and the Vaughan too? Well, interestingly, Juan Antonio Fletcher says, no, they're definitely not, because we're going right up to by the coast tomorrow. And it's a very windy part of the world. Today on Von 2, the winds were gusting at about 30, uh, either 30 kilometers or 30 miles per hour. I can't remember. Whichever one it is, pretty high. So the riders actually are pretty nervous about tomorrow and how the, and how the bunch might split if there are those, uh, are those crosswinds that we may well expect. Well, remember, I mean, that's where we saw um, HTC High Road take advantage of a split um, and where we saw Lance Armstrong actually, you know, get, gain an advantage on Alberto Contador but because Alberto had a moment's inattention. So you're right. I mean, this is, you've got uh, the Mistral, all sorts of winds coming in from the sea. We could see a relatively normal sprinter stage turned into absolute echelon carnage tomorrow. Yeah, and let's not pretend that's not all winners for the team. We haven't seen any big echelons yet, and we love seeing echelons. I love seeing the elastic split and seeing the guys really, really struggling to get into those perfect positions. And we're going to uh, Eurosport, actually. We've got, we've got some fantastic new graphics, guys, and I'll tweet a link later on, but I believe on the Eurosport website they've put the first one of, uh, of the pieces of work from those guys up, which is explaining a sprint train. And it's amazing. And we're actually going to do another one tomorrow explaining echelons as well. So keep an eye out for that. Cool. I'll look forward to it. And finally, definitely finally this time, um, is yeah. it just us fans who are talking about Alberto Contador going to Trek, Segafredo, or is it buzzing around the peloton? <laughs> uh, it's buzzing around the peloton. It's in the grass next to me. There are five people around the urinals who are talking about it. The policemen, I can definitely see writing it down in their notebooks. And on all the antennas using the uh, uh, the Wi-Fi networks and so on, there's pretty much nothing there. It's pretty much a done deal, John. I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah, I think it definitely is. Well, you know, away and, and have your chat with Greg and we'll catch up tomorrow. And uh, hopefully we'll get those echelons and it'll give us something to talk about, John. Yeah, yeah, that's right, because you and me really struggle for stuff to talk about, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you, Ashley? Uh, I'm on Eurosport with Tour de France Extra with Juan Antonio Fletcher before and after the live coverage of the stage. I'm on in the evenings on Eurosport with Greg Lamont for Le Tour by Lamont, and I'm tweeting Ashley on Twitter.
So the top 10s for today. Michael Matthews takes the win ahead of Petter Sagan. In third place was Edvard Bosenhagen. In fourth, Greg Van Avermet. And in fifth, Samuel de Milan. In sixth place was Daryl Impey. Seventh, Luke Durbridge. Eighth, Damiano Caruso. Ninth, Gorka Isaguer. And rounding out the top 10 was Tony Gallopan. No change to the general classification after stage 10. Chris Froome still retains the leader's yellow jersey ahead of Adam Yates in second place by 16 seconds. In third is Dan Martin at 19 seconds. Nairo Quintana sits in fourth at 23 seconds, while Joaquim Rodriguez sits in fifth at 37 seconds. Bauka Mollema is in sixth at 44 seconds, along with Roman Bardi in seventh and Sergio Hanau in eighth. In ninth place is Louis Menkes at 55 seconds, while Alejandro Valverde rounds out the top 10 at 1 minute and 1. Do you know what? It just shows how much cycling has changed in the decades I've been watching it. At stage 10, there's only 19 seconds between first and third. And the top three are all English-speaking riders, but all from different teams. I mean, it is something that certainly English-speaking commentators have been have been making a lot of across this tour. So, yeah, I mean, it has been a, a huge change. I mean, Britain wasn't a, a country that, that did particularly well at cycling. And I'll tell you the other thing that struck me, um, you know, is we've had the Pyrenees now. You know, it, it's gone. They were hard stages. They're out the way. We're a couple of days away from Vong too, and then you know onward to the Alps. And the first ten, first eleven, actually, are still only spanned by a minute and one second. Mm. You know, everybody because of that amazing attack he did, and it, I've watched it a couple of times again. And the risks that Chris Froome took in that attack, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for having a right pair of swingers, as the Australians say. I mean, just a brave, brave riding, and probably and, a slap from his missus. Well, absolutely. You know, although they've got one in the bank now, so it's fine. But <laughs> you know, other than that, nobody has looked absolutely, you know, crushingly, definitively strong. Even Fabio Aru, who you know, most folk are dismissing a bit, only won 23 back. You know, and we've still got the better part of two weeks of absolutely brutal racing to have. You know, don't be counting out this race already. You know, don't be thinking Chris Froome's got it in the bag because he's, you know, he's won one stage and he's in yellow already. There's still a lot of racing to be done. And I think we're going to see a few twists and turns in the tail before we get to Paris. Now, while it was a sprint that decided the stage today, it will surely be a much bigger bunch who will contest the win tomorrow. Stage 11 from Carcassonne to Montpellier is the traditional transitional affair that the Tour often has to make as it snakes its way from the Pyrenees towards Provence and the Alps. And with all the sprinters still left in this year's race, it should be a cracking high-octane finish. Well, I, I I thought that until I was chatting to Ashley, as you heard, and, and he mentioned the fact that this is uh, Mistral country and, and might be Echelon Central. I think the sprinters are certainly counting it as one of their stages, but, uh, you know, the peloton are worried about wind. <laughs> well, uh, you're in Castle country, so you're bound to be, aren't you? Uh, so just on that point, I saw some reports today of 100 mile an hour uh, winds on Mont Ventoux. Now, yeah. that, that's enough to knock riders completely off their bike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting. The weather's uh, the weather's going to prove a real challenge over the next couple of days. And actually, you know, it's it just goes back to what I was saying. If you think this race is over, 
then you're being extremely premature in your conclusions. There's still a lot of racing to be done and all it'll take is a moment's inattention or a really dramatic attack. And we've heard actually from um, a movie star from Nairo Quintana that they are purposely keeping their legs dry, or their, their powder dry rather than their legs fresh. It's what we were talking about when we wondered why they weren't attacking. They resisted the urge to attack, they said, and are waiting for the moment where they can get the gap and where they can make the difference. Now that's a risky strategy, but it just shows that there's still a lot to play out. Now, the question, just as you were talking there regarding Movistar, I was immediately reminded of that stage in the tour several years ago now where Alejandro Valverde was essentially paid back for, mm. <laughs> you, you know where I'm going, mm. where there was an echelon and the entire team get, got caught behind. And I'm wondering whether there's just the vaguest of notions from Movistar tomorrow to kind of get payback for, for that and use the Mistral if it is there on the, the stage to try and force the split and, and catch maybe Sky and the other teams unawares. Do you know, last year I would have laughed at you, mate. I genuinely would have laughed at you if you'd suggested Wouldn't that. be the first time, John, let's be yeah, honest. This year we've seen a super-drilled, super-confident movie star. So if they can make the difference, they certainly will. And remember, you know, we're after the rest day, so that's out of the way. But you have just one day away, the giant Provence looming in the distance. So if you can hurt your opponents before you get to terrain that will suit you think will suit you without you know putting yourself to the sword as well, why wouldn't you take the chance? I think we're 90% certain to have a sprinter stage tomorrow, but that other 10% could be, you know, riders all over the road. Mm. And it's not a pan-flat stage, you know, it's kind of um, set this up as being a stage for a bunch sprint at the finish, but with strong wins predicted across it, you're absolutely right, it could be completely different. And as I say, it's it's not a pan-flat stage by any manner of means. There are two fourth-cat climbs in, in the first half. And just moving away from potential for GC action, um, there's one sprint point at 113.5, and given the jersey, the green jersey changed hands this afternoon, you're going to have to expect that there'll be a fight between Sagan and Mark Cavendish here as well as being at the finish if it, if it sticks with, with being a bunch gallop. Yeah, I, I fully expect that. I mean, if Cav's not up there for that intermediate sprint, it means the race has gone entirely to pot. You know, and, and I don't mean your kind of Dave Zabriskie, Floyd Landis pot that they're selling for medicinal purposes in America now. Um, Cav, I think, is surprising himself every day. I mean, he surprised us with some interesting gesturing during the race today. <laughs> but <laughs> I think he's actually surprising himself with his form. And I was certainly would go home after the Pyrenees when we saw him, particularly with the success he had in the first week. He's still in touch with Green after, you know, after the first set of mountains. Well, there's and only th- 38 points, something yeah, like that, between the two. Absolutely. So I think until he sees Green as, as completely gone, and he's still making all the noises about Sagan's got the advantage, until he sees Green as completely gone, I don't think we'll see him leave this race. And I'm loving the, you know, the combative spirit that means he's still getting angry at motor riders and stuff. I mean, it's great to watch Cav. Um, so yeah, Green's still alive as well, which I did, I'll be honest, I, I genuinely didn't expect at this point. I think Sagan would already have had enough points to have wrapped it up, but it's still a bit of a fight. Mm. Do you think that's the thing that's, that's keeping him here? Because we heard that, that rumour which, you know, thankfully for the race, didn't pan out. Mark Cavendish stayed and, and, and didn't retire before the, the Pyrenees. Do you think that this 
hunt for, for the green jersey or him still being in the fight for the green jersey is a contributing factor to him hanging around. Yeah, I genuinely do. I mean, I, I could be wrong and we might see him exit after tomorrow because it's the last kind of easy sprinter stage before Vong 2. But I, he seems fired up. You know, he doesn't seem like a guy who's marking time until they let him go home. You know, you don't get that angry with people and you don't put your skin suit on for a stage like today without thinking you've got a chance of a win. And he loves that green jersey. Remember the fights he had with, you know, Torrushoft and stuff. So, yeah, I think it's a big part of why he's still on the roads of France. I think with all that in mind and, you know, the caveat of, of crosswinds and echelons forming tomorrow, you know, aside... I think it's going to be a day for, for Cav. If it does come to a bunch sprint, he had it fairly easy today, whereas we saw Petr Sagan working immensely hard to try and force the win for himself. So I'm going to go for for Cav tomorrow. Well, that doesn't help me because I was going to go for Cav as well. Um, ah, so we I'll should have, have coordinated. somebody else now. Uh, and I'm going to pick, who will I pick? I think I'm going to pick Michael Matthews for the simple reason that he's had two absolutely crap tours that did him no favours at all. He deserves one where it's kind of Christmassy. Okay, fair enough. Kind of Christmassy. There's, there's an analogy. Uh, just before we go, I think we need to pay special, special thanks to, to Ashley for the, the file that he delivered to us today and a, a, just a small part of which you heard right at the top of the show. Made me laugh for a good quarter of an hour, actually, and it was only a one minute 50 file, which I had it on loop for a quarter of an hour, just ending myself laughing. Thanks, mate. Seriously, when we started podcasting all those years ago now, if you told me that we would have intros from, you know, number one and number two in my list of all time favourite cyclists, um, I would have I would have laughed in your face. I mean, such a privilege to have Greg, who's my, my number one cyclist of all time, because I was such a fan at the time, and Eddie, who's, well, you know, he's Eddie. Um, such an honour to have them at the head of the show. Thank you for joining us today as the Tour de France played dress up and pretended to be a one-day monument for the afternoon. Join us again tomorrow for a look at all the action from Stage 11 in another edition of The Velocast. <laughs>